Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, your weekly insight into the most significant conservative ideas being discussed right now all across America. From policymakers to grassroots activists, and from thought leaders to elected leaders, each week we bring you the people and the ideas shaping the American Republic. Brought to you with a dose of Texas, where Lone Star Liberty shines brighter than ever. Well, folks, thanks again for joining another episode of the Foundation Podcast. We are thrilled to be producing this edition at the 16th Annual Policy Orientation of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. If you are somewhere in a place we call not Texas, then you can go to texaspolicy.com and look at some great videos of this orientation, not just about Texas, but also about the United States. And we encourage you to visit that website and take a look texaspolicy.com. Perhaps more important, however, is that you are in for a treat this week. We have our very own Dr. Tom Lindsay, who's director of our Center for Innovation and Education, longtime scholar and administrator in higher education. Tom comes to us from many stops along the way, as is customary in higher ed, at the University of Dallas, the National Endowment for the Humanities, Shimer College, a Chicago PhD, which will be relevant to our conversation today. And we're thrilled to have our longtime friend, Dr. Stanley Kurtz, PhD from Harvard, currently senior fellow at the Center for our Ethics and Public Policy Center. Also someone who is instrumental in what we're going to be focusing on today, and that is campus free speech. Stanley is the lead author on what's known as the Goldwater Bill, a bill that tries to address the problem of free speech on our campuses. So today, what is on the table for discussion is how we address the problem of free speech on college campuses. As is often our fashion, what we try to do first is read reality truthfully, look at sort of this aspirational vision of where we want to be in 10 or 20 years, sooner if we can, but also in order to give our listeners some sense of the path what are the steps necessary to get from here to there? Tom and Stanley, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. So Stanley, I thought what would be good is for us to take an assessment of the here. And although we're optimists on the Foundation podcast, we know that there might be some reason for pessimism. And so we're going to read reality truthfully, take a picture of how bad it is if you are a young person or a college professor or an administrator who simply wants to exercise your right to free speech on a college campus. Why don't you walk us through some of the worst examples and also sort of a general overview of the problem? Well, Kevin, I do think it's fair to say that there is a campus free speech crisis going on in this country right now. And Texas has certainly not been immune at the national level, of course, we've seen some very serious incidents of shout-downs of speakers who come visiting to various colleges and universities. Charles Murray at Middlebury uh, College, Heather McDonald at um, the Claremont Colleges. Speakers who try to, to tell students about contemporary issues and literally are shouted down by students, that interferes with the rights of the speaker, absolutely, but also with the rights of all the students who want to listen to the speaker. And I think the really troubling thing about these shout-downs is they're not actually addressed to the speaker who's being silenced. They're addressed in reality to every student 
and every faculty member at that school. The message is, look, we just stopped this powerful person from speaking. This is what we'll do to you if you try to say the same things. So these shoutdowns aren't just isolated incidents. They're really acts of intimidation that have ripple effects far beyond the particular incident. They lead to self-censorship. And in, in a climate of self-censorship, you can't have education because education is supposed to be about the free exchange of ideas. So we face a crisis in the country because of these shoutdowns and because administrators don't punish the shoutdowns, and so they proliferate, they escalate, and of course, famously, the administrators maintain anti-free speech policies. They have speech codes, so-called, that tell you ahead of time what you can and can't say. These are almost always unconstitutional. They maintain tiny little postage stamp-sized free speech zones, so-called, uh, where you're supposed to be able to say whatever you want except it's the size of a parking lot and that means really that you can't say what you want at the rest of the college. So again, education most fundamentally is grounded on the free exchange of ideas. If you can't have that, you can't have education and yet our colleges are suffering from a free speech crisis which completely undermines the very purpose of these institutions. I think that's really well said. So, Tom, if we think about one thing that Stanley implies, which is that this is not some happenstance. Yeah. It's not some knee-jerk reaction to, say, Donald Trump being reelected, although maybe that provoked a spike in some of these incidents. That, in other words, this is a long-running trend. We might even say something that has been a project of the left. Am I off base by speculating that that's the case? No, I don't think you're off base at all. Uh, this has been going on for a long time. I mean, if we step back, Kevin, uh, and take a look at the big picture, Socrates' trial, where he is on tr trial for the capital crimes of impiety and corrupting the youth. And there he gives what, had, what has become the classic defense of liberal education, in which he says the unexamined life is not worth living for a human being. Now, as we know, Socrates uh, was, was convicted and executed uh, for his efforts to engage in free debate and inquiry. So that tells us that there's something in human nature uh, that is always going to make free speech vulnerable precisely at the same time that it's... Sure. So before we delve into more detail in terms of examples, and of course we will, we will get to possible solutions, I want to t actually take a step back, to take a wider view of the problem. We have very quickly, because the three of us work on this problem so extensively, homed in on college campuses. But if we were actually to zoom out and look at all of civil society in America, to the extent we have a civil society in America still, are there other arenas in which, other public squares literally, in which free speech is as damaged or as threatened as it is on college campuses? Or have we really zoomed in on the biggest target, the biggest problem for free speech being threatened? I think the situation is worst of all on college campuses, but college campuses are not isolated in our society. They are the generator of what people think in succeeding generations and I do think there is a broader problem that we're seeing in at least many members of the millennial generation. A few a couple months ago Nancy Pelosi 
was shouted down uh, as she attempted to speak about immigration policy uh, by a number of uh, dreamers who were uh, protesting her. This was not at a university. This was a shout-down beyond that. And actually, other Democratic politicians have suffered the same thing. We're starting to see a normalization in society as a whole of what we see on campuses. But I think it's coming out of the college campuses, and I think this is a wake-up call to society as a whole, which tends to write off, frankly, what goes on in colleges and has for many decades as, well, that's just a bunch of crazy liberal professors. Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of the sensible uh, people manage to make it through college by ignoring those professors and ignoring those courses. But the truth of the matter is, they are shaping an entire generation, and it is going to have an impact on the entire culture if we don't take action very soon. Tom? Yes, you know, it's been said, and I think rightly, that the philosophy taught in the classroom in this generation will be the philosophy practiced in the legislature in the next generation. And unfortunately, we're seeing that that's the case. Recent surveys show that 40% of young people today think that there is or should be a hate speech exception to the First Amendment, even though the Supreme Court has ruled for many, many decades that, that that's not the case. Now that's 40% of young people as opposed to 20% of baby boomers who believe that. So what has changed? What has changed is what we're teaching in the universities, and not simply teaching in the classes, but when students become inured to the denial of their free speech on campus. We know they've already been weakened in their capacity as citizens once they graduate to go on and, and be willing to debate uh, uh, contentious issues. Instead, what we're, what we're producing in the university are graduates who are afraid to take on contentious issues. So you've just listed a few examples or pieces of evidence of the normalization of this behavior that, that Stanley identified. And so I, I think most people would understand that, although we, we, we find it tragic. Put this for this historian on a timeline. When did this begin to develop? I, I get that question all the time. And I used to get it from students when I was in the classroom teaching the famous American history survey course. When did this change? Uh, is there a decade? Is there an event? We, we've identified that there's a trend. What is the origin of that trend is what I'm driving at. There, there is a historical timeline on this. It's really during the 60s that the practice of these shout-downs became prominent. And you had something called the Woodward Report, which was done at Yale University, chaired by the historian C. Van Woodward in 1974. That reviewed the previous decade where there had been a series of shout-downs and speaker disinvitations, just as we're seeing now. So the first wave was in the 60s. After the Woodward Report came out and condemned these instances and also recommended a discipline policy, which was the inspiration, by the way, for this model legislation that I co-authored, after that we did see an improvement, and there was a general quieting down of the cultural turbulence uh, after the mid-70s. But then, uh, at about 1983, things began to kick up again. There was a particular incident at the University of California, Berkeley. Jean Kirkpatrick was the UN ambassador of Ronald Reagan. She came and she spoke at the University of California, Berkeley, and she was shouted down. And there was an argument about whether to punish the people who had disrupted her talk. 
And finally, the faculty and administration decided not to punish anyone. And after that, shout-downs began to spread across the country. And very slowly but surely, they've been spiking up ever since. Sure. Tom? I first realized that censorship and the, and the moral premises that uh, seemed to justify it had already been pretty well institutionalized. By 1989, I was just a newly minted PhD. I was at a liberal arts college outside of Philadelphia, Ursinus College, and we had an all-faculty meeting in which all faculty were required to attend and to vote. And the proposal before it was to, to institute race, class, and gender across the curriculum in every subject matter. And normally we took secret votes. Right? Just before the vote, one of the professors who was uh, saying that we needed to do this said, I simply cannot imagine that anyone on this campus would be opposed to this, and therefore I propose that we have an open vote. And they did. And that's when I knew. And this, this was in 1989, which, which uh, <clears throat> from one liberal arts guy to another, meaning to help you out with some math, is a long time ago. It was a long time, <laughs> yes, and I appreciate that help. Well, you know, Alan Bloom's Closing the American Mind, 1987. I mean, he, he saw it, right, and I think enough good Americans also saw it, and that was the reason it became a bestseller. Sure. He knew he was onto something. It reminds me of being a young tenure-track history professor at a state university in New Mexico, and it was 2004. Ronald Reagan had just died. And my colleagues, who were good people, but not conservative, decided that they were going to have a symposium on Reagan's legacy. Now, as a historian of the United States, even though personally I love Reagan, I, I would think that I could be at that symposium and both celebrate but also criticize, right? It's what historians do. It's what scholars do. They, of course, were not going to celebrate. And I realized, boy, I'm really endangering tenure by agreeing to this symposium. So let me get a tenured colleague from the Department of Economics who is trained by our wonderful, very own doctor and Senator Phil Graham. When they learned, my colleagues in the history department learned, that this colleague from the economics department, who was a great scholar, very well known, was going to join me as the other conservative on the symposium, they canceled it. So they were willing to take on an untenured history professor four-on-one, but they were not going to take a ratio of two-to-one. And that convinced me that, and I already knew this, of course, but it convinced me that this, in fact, may be a fool's errand as a conservative. So we're going to get into some, some, some problems and some solutions regarding students, but what about professors who, who are generally right-minded, or for that matter, just want to be fair? Maybe they wouldn't even ascribe a particular ideology to themselves. What's life like for them, Stanley? Professors are concerned, uh, and they are censoring themselves. I know some who speak about how worried they are that they'll be accused for some minor innocuous remark of some kind of bigotry or for bringing up a policy issue, even literally just bringing up the policy issue. And I think the larger problem is that um, academia is now now dominated by a plurality of professors who don't really believe in classic liberalism anymore. They're not really looking to have free and balanced discussions. They are looking to convert. They are looking to politically persuade. And the others are on the defensive. And I think back to a book by Arthur Schlesinger Jr., a liberal who had a national bestseller 
with a book that I think was called The Disuniting of America. This is a book that was praised by the New York Times, believe it or not, for criticizing the excesses of multiculturalism. And in that book, Schlesinger said there's a silent majority of reasonable, fair-minded, liberal professors on campus. And sooner or later, they are going to rise up and push aside all of the excesses of multiculturalism. Well, it never happened. In fact, it's gotten far, far worse. But I think we have to remember that Schlesinger, as great as that book was, was overly optimistic. The, these liberal professors were intimidated by all the sort of mechanisms that, that you and Tom have just described. Mm -hmm. So Tom, let's say that there's a, a listener to this podcast episode who's a prospective college student, or maybe the parent of a prospective college student, and all they want is a fair shake. They want to be able to go into a class. They want to be respectful and polite and all of those things that young people should be toward people in authority, including their professors. And yet they just want to get the grade that they deserve, regardless of whatever ideological differences they may have. What kind of practical advice would you give that young person so that he or she can go to the college of their choice? Yeah, well, that's a good question. First thing I would tell them to do is look to see whether any of their prospective schools are among the 34 universities that have signed on to the University of Chicago's free speech statement. Um, second, they should go to the uh, website for the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, which uh, grades schools based on their free speech policies. And I would tell parents um, this, that the importance of this really can't be overstated. It's hard for uh, people my age who haven't worked in universities as I have to imagine how different it is from when they were in college, but I'm here to tell you it is. Uh, Stanley uh, uh, has written well on, on this subject. And so they need to recognize that the universities are not only in a culture war, they are in many ways the font of the culture war. And if they want to make sure that their children continue to believe the principles that they work so hard to raise them in, then they need to pay a special care to the free speech protection or lack thereof at the universities that they're considering. Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, what's that URL? Uh, yeah, fire.org. Fire.org, okay, good. Stanley, any additional advice for that prospective college student or their parents? Pray. <laughs> yes, it's important, but maybe not necessarily in the classroom. <laughs> no, not in the classroom. <laughs> no, I don't think there's any easy answer. There, uh, there used to be a, a tiny little archipelago of colleges that were outside of some of these problems, but one by one they've fallen by the wayside. There are still a few small schools that you can go to if you're, if you're willing to sacrifice the prestige of the fancier schools, and that may well be worth it. Some of them are great. And, of course, there's Hillsdale College, which is superb. Uh, but uh, but in, in the larger places, I would say go online, and if you're conservative-leaning, or at least you want to read people who are counter, keep reading those uh, websites. The problem is when you're in college, you don't have a lot of time to do anything other than your coursework. But if you keep an eye out to people who write against the grain of the movement in current university, that, that's the best that you can do right now. That's really good advice. Tom? I just want to add that another thing that can be done, and this is more forward-looking, but it's indispensable, 
you should, the next time your alma mater contacts you for a donation, ask them whether or not their school has signed the University of Chicago's free expression statement. And then look up where they are ranked in the fire ratings. And if they are not protecting free speech, then we know they're not really protecting liberal education. And so therefore tell them that when they when they return to their original mission, then you'll reconsider giving them funding. But I wouldn't give my alma mater a penny if, if it wasn't completely devoted to free speech. Now, I'm fortunate because I went to the University of Chicago. I'm confident that more and more colleges and universities are going to join the University of Chicago statement. And that's going to happen even faster if parents get involved. That's really well said. And, and Chicago deserves credit for being an one of the rare institution with real prestige, very legitimate prestige, that has signed on to that statement. It, it reminds me of having my friend, former Senator Rick Santorum, come out and, and speak at a fundraiser for Wyoming Catholic College when I was president. Wyoming Catholic College is still one of the newest colleges in the United States, 12 years old, but it speaks about how difficult it is to break into the industry. And he said, Kevin, what do you want me to talk about? I said, whatever is on your heart. I mean, people will appreciate what you have to say. He's, I forget where he went to school, but I know he pulls for the Penn State Nittany Lion football team. Like me, with my alma mater being University of Texas, that might be more of a professional team than, than it is a, a real alma mater. But the point is this. He told this group of donors in Denver, he said, if you want to figure out how you can address, how you can help, this problem in higher education, whether it's supporting Wyoming Catholic or Hillsdale, the first thing you have to do before you even write a check to these upstart schools is stop sending checks to your alma mater. But if you still have that tug on your heart because your alma mater, as it has a moral obligation to do, formed you and cultivated you to send a check to them, call and put some pressure on them to do the right thing. And by that, he was really focused on this issue of free speech. So I would encourage our listeners to do that. We're not suggesting cancel your support, but maybe before sending your support, and this is what I do, the University of Texas, is call them. And most of the time you're going to get a deaf ear, but the more and more people they hear doing that, it, it will affect their decision. Because I think the three of us can speak with, with firsthand, with experience, that colleges, college administrators, understand the importance of the bottom line, just like any business. I think that's right, and we saw that here in Texas just last year in the case of SMU, which had, uh, uh, was moving a 9-11 display that had been done every year by uh, young conservatives of Texas and uh, moving it to a spot that would be the moral equivalent of a little free speech zone. And the alums uh, spoke up, and they reversed their decision. And that's, that's good news for lovers of liberty. It is, and I think we also probably should take some time to encourage students, especially those at larger universities, and not just the big publics. There are plenty of larger private schools that have equally poor records when it comes to free speech, that there almost always exists a pretty silent majority, or at least a silent plurality of like-minded students. And all it takes, as is lesson in life, a couple of people to speak up, and, and then you probably will realize you're not isolated. So Stanley, let's talk some solutions. We've, I think we've, we've, I would hope, convinced our listeners that this is a big problem. And so what have we been working on in terms of policy that we're hopeful will begin to address the problem? 
Well, I'm a co-author of a piece of model campus free speech legislation published by Arizona's Goldwater Institute. And uh, legislation based on that model has been taken up in a number of states. Uh, it's already be, uh, become law in North Carolina, uh, a piece of legislation based on that model. It's close to becoming law in Wisconsin, and it's before quite a number of other states. Probably in the next two weeks, I'm going to be announcing uh, a handful of additional states. So what the Goldwater model does is what, first of all, what a lot of other models do. It bans these speech codes, uh, these so-called free speech zones, makes it tough for administrators to disinvite visiting speakers, makes it difficult for administrators to, or students, to discriminate against student groups because they have unfashionable beliefs. But in addition to all of those provisions, the unique features of the Goldwater model uh, involve these shout-downs and also a system of oversight to keep these administrators honest. So the Goldwater model insists that the university develop a set of disciplinary sanctions for people who silence the speech of others, as in the shout-downs or say if you rip down a poster for a talk that you don't like or steal a run of campus newspapers that have an op-ed that you don't like. You've got to develop sanctions. It also gives very strong due process rights to anyone accused of a violation. And this, of course, is in contrast to uh, these unfortunate kangaroo court tribunals under Title IX, where accused students are not given due process rights. And then, perhaps most importantly, there is a provision that says, well, if your administrators want to give you a pass, if you shout down someone on one occasion, all right, that's their decision. But if you are found responsible for shouting someone down twice, then you're going to have to at least face a suspension. You're going to have to uh, face serious discipline. And that is just because if you do this a second time after being told it's wrong, you obviously haven't learned the principle at stake. But also it's a kind of backstop, a kind of safety net to stop these administrators from continually either doing nothing or issuing meaningless slaps on the wrist, which is a very common occurrence. So the Goldwater Bill insists on reasonable discipline, and it also sets up an oversight system. Now, some of the mo model bills have the administrators reporting on themselves. And of course, when they do that, they'll give themselves a nice pat on the back. But the Goldwater model has the uh, trustees, or in Texas, the regents, would be in charge of an annual oversight report. And there are always at least a few trustees who might not be fully on board with the administration. And so an administrator would then have to think twice about refusing to punish students who uh, shout down a speaker, uh, about not being honest and transparent with the public and with the legislature, because they know that those trustees who have access to all of their internal information are going to be giving a report. And well, if there are a few legislatures, legislators who might want to uh, cut the funds of the university, he would have to worry that they would use a bad report to make an argument in that direction. So this would start to create a counterforce, because right now all the pressure on administrators is to do nothing. I want to get it off the front pages, I don't want any controversy, I don't want to make the parents of the demonstrators unhappy. And hey, I may even sympathize with what the demonstrators were saying. So we're trying to create a counter-pressure there. Yeah I, yeah, I just wanted to add to that. Uh, first, I want to I want to congratulate and thank uh, Stanley and the Goldwater Institute 
for putting together what I think is the best proposal out there to restore campus speech, and that's good news. And, and I also agree with the, the shout-downs or heckler's veto is likely the most toxic thing that we face on campus, or more precisely, the argument by which some seek to justify it, and that is that shouting down an invited speaker is just as legitimate an exercise of the First Amendment right of free speech as that speaker speaking to, at an event to which he or she was invited. Now, when students in college study Plato's Republic, they you say when, <laughs> not if. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, there was a time when they all did, but some still do. Um, they encounter early on the classic defense of tyranny when Thrasymachus says that justice is the advantage of the stronger, or as it's come to be known, might makes right. Now, in the Republic, Socrates has the freedom to debate and to therewith defeat Thrasymachus. But free speech, both on campus and then in the public square, will be defeated if we continue to regard the heckler's veto or shout down is a legitimate exercise of the First Amendment because what that will teach students is that justice is the advantage of the louder. Justice is the advantage of those who are more angry and passionate. Justice is the advantage of those who are better able to intimidate others into silence. We all know that the health of our democracy depends on our exercising the restraint to take turns. We all have a right to free speech, but not at the same time. Well, Tom and Stanley, we could spend probably hours, in fact, we probably do spend hours talking about campus free speech. So as we begin to conclude this episode, because the three of us are about to go into a session at Policy Orientation on this, what final thoughts do you have, maybe with a tinge of optimism for our listeners? Tom, we'll start with you. Well, I don't think you have to have an optimistic uh, spirit to be optimistic about this, because and Stanley has done great work on this across the country, state legislatures and university boards, they are recognizing that freedom of speech is threatened and they know what it means. So I think this is a good news story. I think we're starting to see a restoration across the country. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. There's a kind of rhythm in this issue. Back when Alan Bloom's book came out and a Secretary William Bennett was the Secretary of Education under President Ronald Reagan, the problems of higher education were a major national issue. They were discussed all the time. And then came some decades of frustration for people like Tom and I when the higher education just was eclipsed as an issue. Again, people tended to roll their eyes and write off the craziness of the academy as irrelevant. Now, sadly, things have gotten so bad, so tremendously bad, that it's good in the sense that the public has woken up, people are alert to the problem. Yes. We're in a very serious dilemma, but for the first time in decades, we're, we're fighting back, and there's a serious public debate on this. So that's, I, I'd say that despite all the problems, that is a genuine cause for optimism. And, and we really want to encourage those of you who are professors of a minority opinion, prospective college students, current college students, but also we would say alumni as well, that we really, our, our goal in highlighting this issue is to solve the problem so that all of these institutions of higher learning can in fact be institutions of higher learning. If it's true that as higher education goes, so goes America, then everyone listening to this podcast needs to be concerned. So where do they find the text and more information on this Goldwater Bill, Stanley? 
uh, you go to the website of the Goldwater Institute, there's a, a page there called Restoring Campus Free Speech that has the actual language of the bill, it has a white paper that explains all the provisions, frequently asked questions, and that sort of thing. Or you can Google uh, my name and Campus Free Speech and you'll see a lot of articles on the issue. Thank you. Dr. Stanley Kurtz, Dr. Tom Lindsay, your scholars and gentlemen, great Americans, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for listening to the Foundation Podcast, brought to you by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Please don't forget to subscribe.